faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings of a single bound. This amazing stranger, the planet Krypton, the man of steel. Who are you? A friend. Look. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Hello, welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, Superman's pal, J. David Weeder. This is episode 36, back after a two-week break, and man, I'm feeling awesome now. I always miss being on the microphone you know, when I do take breaks, but every now and then you got to have a recharge of the batteries. And, uh, so, well, what happened while I was gone? Russell Crowe was cast as Jor-El in the Man of Steel. I think that is genius casting. And Julia Armand as Lara would really compliment him. Now, neither one of those are a hundred percent official yet, but, uh, the announcement was actually met with a lot of hate, which I don't get. I mean, Crow is a great actor, and he's a lot more versatile than people give him credit for. I don't know if you know this, but the, the man did win an Oscar, for Pete's sake. Another thing that happened in my absence, or very recently, is my compadres, Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey, over at From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the Superman homepage, hit their 100th episode. So a hearty congratulations to both of them. They're both awesome guys, and I'm incredibly impressed with their show. And with that, in all honesty, I'm, I'm ready to get this show on the road. We have a lot to go over this week, including two issues of Action Comics, a talk about Bizarro, a look at the first half of a two-part Superman the Animated Series episode featuring Lobo. And so let's play a promo for a fellow comic podcast, and we'll dive right into the Superman comics cover dated October 2007. Rocketed as a being from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And our first stop on the Superman Comics cover dated October 2007 is Superman, oh, pardon me, Action Comics number 854, which went on sale about August 15, 2007. The story is PAL, written by Kurt Busick, penciled by Brad Walker, inked by John Livesay, which is only credited as Livesay, ironically, uh, lettered by Travis Lanham. Colored by Richard Horry, uh, also colored by Tanya Horry, assistant editor Nachi Castro, edited by Matt Idelson, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this issue was reprinted in Superman 321 Action, that particular trade paperback. And before this issue begins, we must kind of flash back a little bit to countdown number 37. In it, Jimmy is tinkering with his signal watch and puts together that Clark is Superman. So Jimmy tracks Clark down at the Daily Planet cafeteria and asks him for help for to get a tryout with the Justice League with his newfound superpowers. And when Clark tries to balk on him, Jimmy rips open Clark's shirt and tells him, Clark, I know you're Superman. That is exactly where this issue opens up, in that very awkward shirt-ripping moment. And Clark tries to stammer out some excuses, but clearly it's not going to work. So Clark fesses up, and Clark asks Jimmy, how he knows, which Jimmy has no real answer for, but he still thinks he would make a good addition to the Justice League. Clark tries to tell Jimmy that there is more to being on the League than fighting petty criminals, and Jimmy references the fact that he recently went up against the Exomorphic Man, and then there was the recent run-in with the Kryptonite Man, which takes us conveniently back to where we left off next issue. Pre pardon me, last issue. With Superman at the mercy of the Kryptonite Man, right after crashing into his lair to find Jimmy, who himself was trapped in a storage closet with some sonic equipment, piecing together a replacement for his broken signal watch. Which ends up summoning not Superman or Supergirl, but Crypto the Superdog, 
returning to the Superman canon for the first time since Infinite Crisis. I want to stop right there for a moment because there's a bit of irony because I've been uh, talking about how the crypto story has been solicited multiple times and really kind of convinced that we were never going to see it. Well, it's on stands now. It's Action Comics 712. So go out and check that out. Very good issue. Very good issue. And we're going to get back to that way down the line. So uh, crypto has shown up and frees Jimmy from the ropes that bind him and realizes Soups is in trouble. So with a bellowing bark, Crypto blasts down the wall of the closet and attacks the Kryptonite man to protect his master. Jimmy remembers to throw his Mr. Action cowl back on and get Superman away from the Kryptonite radiation as Crypto takes a pounding. And Jimmy becomes Solar Jimmy and imbues Superman with some yellow sun radiation. As Jimmy tends to an injured Crypto, Superman gets a second wind and goes back into battle with the Kryptonite man using lead-lined glass to deflect Abernathy's blasts back at the villain. As the shape-changing chimp watches, the kryptonite man overloads and has a pocket meltdown. And the day is saved. As the science police clean up the mess left behind, Superman tells them that he can't take all of the credit as somebody helped him. If only he knew who. Well, Jimmy has escaped and changed into street clothes in time to rush an injured crypto away from the scene. Back at the Daily Planet, Jimmy tells Clark that Crypto is recovering at Jimmy's apartment, and Superman fills Jimmy in on the fact that Crypto has been missing for over a year, and that Connor's death at the end of Infinite Crisis really hit the dog hard. But for now, his pooch is safe in Jimmy's hands, and slowly recovering from the kryptonite blasts he received. Superman tells Jimmy that he will think about a Justice League tryout for his pal, as it would be good training for his newfound powers, and then flies off into the night leaving Jimmy to wonder whatever happened to that kryptonite monkey. The green simian is still wandering the city, scaring pigeons off rooftops, that kind of thing. And returning home to a recovered crypto, Jimmy rubs the dog's belly when crypto gets a whiff of some sort of danger and throws on his cape. In Metro Park, the kryptonite monkey is cornered by animal control, which he combats by turning into a giant kryptonite gorilla. And this is the danger that crypto smelled, and the dog of steel rushes in, begins to battle the simian monstrosity, and Jimmy, tagging along, throws on his Mr. Action outfit, seeing the opportunity to make a big splash and prove to Superman that he belongs in the Justice League. Sitting in his apartment, reading his newspaper, Superman overhears what Jimmy is saying. Jimmy activates a giant size power and gets ready to do battle to prove his worth to the League. As he rears back to punch the beast, he realizes that this, this is just a monkey. A scared monkey who isn't looking for a fight. He just wants somebody to love him. And Mr. Action calms the monkey down. and They both shrink down to normal size when Superman shows up, congratulates Jimmy on stopping a threat without using violence, and the monkey is handed over to Star Labs for protection. With the threat over, Superman, Jimmy, and Crypto take a sidebar, where Superman says that he will get Jimmy a JLA tryout. And as Superman asks Crypto if he is ready to go home, Crypto budges a little, and Superman suggests that the dog uh, really has enjoyed the company of younger people most of the time. More youthful, more playful. So maybe if Jimmy doesn't mind, Crypto could stay with him a little longer. And Jimmy is elated to hear this, and as the story wraps up, Jimmy once again meets up with the neighborhood hottie of Baker Line, Gina, who we saw in the previous issue, 853, and now he's armed with a dog, which catches her attention at last. So... That wraps up this issue. Now, going through it page by page, I did notice page one, it's an odd opening shot of Jimmy ripping open Clark's shirt, including a button popping off. Jimmy shouldn't assume Clark has an extensive budget for dress shirts. Dress shirts aren't cheap. On page three, I like how Superman's cape drapes limply from his shoulders. It's a great way to show his weakened state. Uh, not enough artists really use that. And page five, Jimmy sprouts wolf powers for no apparent reason at all. And why is the kryptonite man having size issues? He kind of starts looking like the Hulkling from Young Avengers. He keeps deviating in size from page to page, panel to panel. And the, well, the crypto and kryptonite fan, uh, kryptonite man fight, to me, immediately brought to mind whatever happened to the man of tomorrow with, you know, the death of crypto and that. And luckily this time there wasn't the unhappy ending. But, you know, certainly it's a callback. 
And Superman deflects Kryptonite Man's powers with lead-lined glass. Now, this is a type of glass that's used in more decorative things, like glass candy bowls, glass bells, things like that. Not so much the stable type of glass you would want to use in a window. So I'm not sure why that was in the building other than, obviously, convenient storytelling. And (laughs) I still love the shot of Superman in full costume in the cafeteria, lounging in a chair. Now, it seems that both Jimmy and Superman have forgotten that they're in the Daily Planet cafeteria. And Clark Kent's clothes are on the floor. So, (laughs) way to keep that secret identity. I'm sure there's a janitorial staff at the Daily Planet building who could walk in at any time. Clark is a, a practiced at this, is what it bothers me. It's not like it's his first rodeo with a secret identity. He's been doing this for a while. But, <sighs> and there are some spots that, you know, in in the scene where Crypto, you know, sniffs danger, throws on his cape, it took me a couple of passes at the page to really figure out what was going on, because it's just not clear. It's an awkward piece of art. And, of course, Jimmy refers to the kryptonite monkey as Titano. Now, it's unclear to me if this is supposed to be a new version of Titano or if Jimmy is making a reference to the existing villain. Now, Action Comics Annual number 10 showed Titano as one of Superman's rogues, and he didn't have kryptonite-fleeced skin. And you know what? I gotta admit it. I like the fact that Jimmy made friends with the monkey rather than delivering a beatdown. And I... (laughs) It busts me up. I mean, that's a great ending to the story. He's just a monkey who wants to be loved. Is that so wrong? And Superman's logic that Crypto would rather hang out with a more youthful company makes sense. Since, I mean, the youthful company is going to be more enthusiastic, more playful, and Superman's probably too busy to really pay Crypto the proper attention. But Gina, you know, if you look back at Action 853 and now, she seems more interested in dogs than the men who walk them. I think that would make me think, um... What's the word I'm looking for? It's right on the tip of my tongue. Um, She's shallow. Yes. Way to go, Jimmy. Way to knock that one out of the park. Well, in terms of the story, we do get some lopsided action. Essentially, we get two climaxes as the Kryptonite Man fight wraps up the cliffhanger from last issue, and then the Kryptonite Monkey takes the stage as the third act. Crypto gets smacked around by both parties, which is a little repetitive. And add to that, the the narrative gets switched around a bit mid-story. As last, the last issue didn't end at the Daily Planet, so we had to start with a framing sequence and then come back to where we left off Media Res. And since the last issue ended with a perfect moment, really great cliffhanger, Crypto coming to the rescue, it was really hard to shift gears and get back into the story this way. And of course, in a lot of ways, this was a non-story. Beyond Crypto going to live with Jimmy, and the ongoing pursuit to learn more about Jimmy's newfound powers... This one just fell flat. And Brad Walker's art was also flat. Uh, Beyond a decent cover, this work really, his work got really sketchy here. And I mean that literally. (laughs) A lot of the art came off as unfinished, sloppy, and there were a few good moments, but overall, the art felt rushed and just off. So, with an awkward flat story and equally awkward flat art, I give this story a rating of quarter bin. Unless you simply have to finish the 3 one action storyline or have a light week and spare change, don't bother with this one. So moving right along, we have Action Comics number 855, also released the same month. And this one came out on August 29, 2007. It's technically cover dated late October 2007, to be clear. And this is Escape from Bizarro World, Chapter 1, written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, artist Eric Powell of The Goon, Lettered by Rob Lay, colored by Dave Stewart, edited by Matt Idelson with assistant editor Nachi Castro, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this issue opens in the early morning hours at the Kent Farm in Smallville. A bump awakens Jonathan and Martha Kent, who amble down the steps to find Bizarro in their living room. Bizarro calls out, Father, and then abducts Jonathan into the night. In the light of day, Martha relays the abduction scene to Clark, who explains that Bizarro isn't like Luther or Parasite. He has no agenda. He's an imperfect clone, with some mixed-up memories that should be Clark's. Martha adds that Bizarro also said, said something about a blue sun. So Superman flies to the Fortress of Solitude, where he consults jor 
who sets the coordinates for the nearest galaxy with a blue sun into Clark's interstellar rocket, which looks strikingly like the Supermobile. Superman blasts off into space for the 17-hour flight to what turns out to be a square version of planet Earth. Upon landing, Superman first encounters a sign that reads, No come, Metropolis, go away, which greets him at the edge of a misshapen wreck of a cityscape. Superman then finds a twisted, horribly misspelled version of the Daily Planet and peers into the dark wreckage of a building to see several sets of eyes staring back at him. Suddenly, a throng of people, all imperfectly formed like Bizarro, comes rushing out at Superman and attacks the world's worst enemy. Superman fights them off and comes face-to-face with Bizarro version of Lois Lane and a Bizarro Clark Kent who declares Bizarro reign of happiness am over. Superman burns away Bizarro's disguise, his Clark Kent disguise, which just ticks Bizarro off to no end and he punches Superman into the sky. The crowd now turns on Bizarro and they get fried with his heat breath for it, except Lois who runs away. All alone, Bizarro is even madder at Superman, and he slams into the Man of Steel, who demands to know where his father is. Father am dead, Bizarro answers. Wait, that means he's not? Superman asks. No, Bizarro says back. Dealing with the twisted logic of Bizarro, when his father's life is at stake, finally just sets Superman off. But before he can act, the Bizarro police come to arrest Bizarro, who again fries them with his heat breath. Superman pleads with them to stop because Bizarro is killing them. And Bizarro explains that they would be happy as that is all he wants. Then Bizarro fires blue beams from his eyes, which cause multiple Bizarros to spring out of Superman like a mogwai and proceed to beat the Man of Tomorrow and once suffocates him with his own cape until Superman loses consciousness. And while out, Superman remembers back to a day in his childhood when Clark Kent sits on a water tower, looking over the Kansas fields. Pa climbs up the water tower and asks Clark, what is he looking at? And Clark explains that he can see and hear the guys playing football miles away, and he feels like it's unfair that he can't play, and has to lie about it on top of that. In the realm of the conscious, Jonathan wakes up to embed, find himself embedded in a crystal, pardon me, within the bizarro version of the Fortress of Solitude. And Bizarro explains that he needs help because he needs to destroy Bizarro World. And with that, the issue ends. Now, how would you feel if Bizarro showed up in your living room at four in the morning? (laughs) The main thing about this issue is I like the perspective Superman gives us on Bizarro when he's talking with Martha. Uh, Bizarro doesn't plot to do evil things. He's just confused. But his confusion has led to deaths. And I've always liked it when Bizarro is treated more like a misguided child, maybe a misguided man-child rather than a full-on malevolent force. And I think the fact that the rocket looks like the Supermobile really revs my engine. Now, true, it doesn't have the giant robotic fists, and it's not an exact copy, but it's 95% the Bronze Age Supermobile. And what a great reveal when Clark is peering into the darkness on Bizarro World. I mean, this trumps the shot in Action Comics Annual number 10, if you remember that, that's when a couple of scientists or a couple of uh, Thanagarians came upon Bizarro World. This just freaks me out because he sees one set of eyes and then suddenly they all pop open. Ooh, creepy. And the shot of Metropolis in this, uh, just sort of the whole planet, this version of Bizarro World really does have resemblances to the Silver Age and Bronze Age, but it feels murkier, a little bit slimier and grosser than before. And you know, going back to Bizarro being that not malevolent force, more of a, a misguided man-child, I want you to think about something. In page 15, uh, in panel 4 of a two-page splash, one of the Bizarros that he spawns, Mogwai-style, literally punches through somebody to get to Superman. Through them. This is somebody not thinking of consequences. There's point A, and there's point B for Bizarro, and there's nothing in between. And the thing... Okay, there is something that bothers me. The sequence on page 16 and 17, that sequence smacks a little bit too much of All-Star Superman's Bizarro World. Now, that version was slimy, but Jimmy snapping pictures of himself, Perry lighting a cigar with his own fire breath, a bit too much of a callback to that Bizarro JLA gimmick, in which Batman's parents killed him. (laughs) But, yeah, the Mogwai thing, Bizarro spawning off of Superman, just weirds me out. I don't necessarily like that. 
Uh, but I don't know another alternative other than them appearing out of thin air. But the thing that really bothers me about this issue is why do we have a flashback right at the climax? What is that out to prove? The issue is moving along at a good clip. It has my attention. Then boom, we're in Smallville out of nowhere. And it just took me out of the story. Luckily, it's right at the end, but it still threw off the reveal in Bizarro's Fortress and, and the real revealed that Paul is basically fulfilling the backwards role of Jor-El, which in itself is pretty inventive. I mean, overall, the issue is a nice way to reintroduce the concept of the Bizarro world in a pretty good uh, first act. And But Johns and Donner don't reinvent the wheel. They do give it some new hubcaps in the aspect that A, Bizarro wants to die. The denizens of Bizarro world genuinely hate Bizarro. And Bizarro world is grosser, murkier, a little bit more sick than before. And the effect is hugely helped by Eric Powell's art. I know it may have its critics, but I am not one of them. Now, we're used to Powell on the goon, and his style has a lot more animated style than what we're used to with Superman. So there is a feeling of being taken out of a Superman story and put into another universe, which happens in the story itself, so it's fitting. And it's a new interpretation of some old classics, and makes me think of Steve Rude's art. And I like Steve the Rude Dude. Or Steve the Dude Rude. Let me try that again. <laughs> all in all, I really like the issue. And it earns the ranking of pull list because I'm already looking forward to the next issue and seeing where Bizarro takes us next. Speaking of next and Bizarro, let's talk about him. Let's talk about the Imperfect Clone. We've covered him a little bit in this context. But let's look at Bizarro as, as a whole, the concept. Bizarro first appeared in comics in Superboy number 68, which came out in October of 1958 in a story entitled The Boy of Steel versus The Thing of Steel, written by Otto Bender and drawn by George Papp. Now, Bizarro was created when Smallville's Professor Dalton tested a duplicate array on The Boy of Steel, actually by accident, and destroyed the machine by accident again, and he made the chalky face duplicate. To be accurate, even though we see Bizarro acting backwards, and that's the more common um, you know, perception, this Bizarro's thought process wasn't backwards in his first appearance. It was just simply flawed. For example, he adopted, and you can't see air quotes, but uh, let's just call it held hostage, depending on how you look at it, a local Smallville farm couple as his parents, used clothes from a scarecrow as a disguise, and tried to attend Smallville High with disastrous results. But his intentions weren't evil. He wanted to be like his originator, Superboy, and was working off the vague, hazy memories he inherited. This first appearance always stuck in my craw, and uh, because it's a tale of intolerance. And by that I don't mean Superman and the Mole Men style story, where Superman, or in this case Superboy, teaches everybody a lesson about accepting others, even if they don't look or think like you. No. This is a story of Superboy's intolerance. From the moment he lays eyes on the creature, Superboy judges him, and then goes out of his way to find the creature's weakness. In fact, the idyllic town of Smallville judges the creature, and is darn near a Frankenstein scene, just shy of pitchforks and, and, and torches. In fact, the only person in the town that even tries to be nice to Bizarro is a young girl named Melissa who befriends him. The trick is, Melissa is blind, so she can't see Bizarro's appearance. In the end, Superboy learns that Bizarro is vulnerable to the pieces of the destroyed duplicate array, and Bizarro willingly sets in a crash course for the Boy of Steel, destroying him and causing his powdered remains to rain down on Melissa, who regains her sight as a result. So what is the lesson from 1958? Judge by appearances... Persecute those who are different, even when they have good intentions, and sacrifice themselves for a greater good. Not the moral I'm used to in Superman stories, and an odd byproduct of the Silver Age. Of course, this is comics, so you can't keep a good hero or villain down. A year later, in July of 1959's Action Comics number 254, Otto Bender would resurrect an adult Bizarro when Lex Luthor tricked an adult Superman into being subjected to a rebuilt duplicator ray. Now, Luthor's goal in rebuilding the machine from Professor Dalton's schematics was to create a new adult Bizarro who would do Luthor's bidding and destroy Superman. 
Instead, the plan backfired, and Bizarro actually helped Superman bring Luthor to justice. The following issue, Action 255, Bizarro concurrently fell in love with Lois and proposed to her by way of a kidnapping. The girl reporter thought fast and used the duplicator ray to create a Bizarro version of herself. So Bizarro Lois, Bizarro the two lovebirds, they realized that they would never fit in on this planet, and they left Earth. But not our hearts. Because a little under a year later, after that, in Action Comics 263 and 264, Superman would discover that Bizarro and Bizarro Lois had found a formerly uninhabited, formerly inhabited, now uninhabited planet, which they took as their own and named Hatray. That's Earth spelled backwards. Bizarro was able to use a little bit of Superman's intellect to reconstruct a duplicator ray and populate the planet with duplicates of himself and Bizarro Lois. The original Bizarro and his bride ruled the planet as king and queen and distinguished themselves with medallions that proclaimed him to be Bizarro number one and her to be Lois number one. The Bizarro code of conduct on Hatre was quite clear. Do the opposite as the Earth people do. No perfection, love ugliness. And this got Superman into a jam when he attempted to repair what he thought was a mistake. Superman was actually put on trial for the crime and only got out of the jam when he made the spherical planet cube. And this was, and then in Superman Volume 1, number 140, Bizarro and Lois were able to procreate naturally. And they were mortified to find that their new baby boy was born as a normal-looking human being. And this led to a tragic discovery, as Bizarro Jr. was taken to Earth and activated the duplicator ray, which struck Supergirl and a piece of green kryptonite. Now, while normal green K didn't affect Bizarro's, the result of the duplicator ray was an imperfect blue kryptonite and a Bizarro Supergirl who immediately succumbed to the blue K's radiation. Thus was born an imperfect weakness for an imperfect duplicate. As the Silver Age gave way to the Bronze Age, almost everyone in Superman's life had a Bizarro duplicate, from Perry White to Lex Luthor, even other heroes like Batman and the entire Justice League. Now, following Infinite—pardon me, following Crisis on Infinite Earths, Hatre and Bizarro were wiped from continuity to give way to the new paradigm. Bizarro was reborn in the post-Crisis universe, originally in John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries, issue number five, when Lex Luthor tried to clone the Man of Steel have his own personal Superman. Sound familiar? Instead, the clone degraded right before their eyes and fell lifeless and chalk-white to the floor. The monster, although never technically called Bizarro, once again took to the city with the vague memories of Clark Kent and made a friend in a blind girl. This is all sounding familiar, except this time the blind girl is Lucy Lane, sister of Lois Lane. The Bizarro creature saved Lucy as she leapt off a high-rise balcony and saved her from certain doom. The monster, uh, lacking pretty much, pretty much lacking the ability to speak, took to the streets of Metropolis. Once again, tried to emulate Clark Kent before sacrificing himself in the same fashion as his Silver Age predecessor, and gave Lucy Lane her sight back. The same genotype of Bizarro would be used several more times in the post-crisis DCU. When Lex Luthor was dying and preparing to clone himself, he used the Bizarro concept as a test for his own clone. And of course, this Bizarro did what Bizarro does and kidnaps Lois, but he ended up dying in, his, in Lois Lane's arms. Now, the version of Bizarro we see in number 855 here, uh, it stems from the Reign of the Emperor Joker storyline from the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s, in which the Clown Prince of Crime gained the powers of Mixus Pitalik and created his own version of Superman's world, including a twisted backwards version of the Man of Steel, which was resulted in Bizarro. When the Joker's reality was wiped out, Mixus Pitalik took some refugees over to the actual DCU, and Bizarro was on board the bus. And by on the bus, I mean it was literally a bus that he took. Now this Bizarro was captured by General Zod, and by General Zod I mean the ruler of Pakalistan. That Zod, which I don't really want to talk about, but he tortured Bizarro, because it's the next best thing to torturing Superman. And Bizarro has been seen several in several of the stories we've covered on this very show in the post-Crisis uh, on Infinite Earths, or post-Infinite Crisis. Let me get my crises straight. Uh, he showed up in Last Sun twice, as Luke's, Lex Luthor had captured him 
to form the new Superman Revenge Squad, which leaves us in a bit of a continuity lurch with this story, as that story still hasn't wrapped up. As a side note, in terms of that story, I plan on covering the action annual number 11 on the same episode as the Camelot Falls conclusion, so we can get some actual closure, and that's a few episodes away. And remember, an annual does not have a month on its cover date, so it's not cheating. Now, Bizarro, in terms of other media, he has appeared in the animated form on several iterations of the Super Friends, voiced by Danny Dark mostly, who also voiced Superman. The exception to this is Challenge of the Super Friends, where he was played by Bill Calloway. Now, the tradition of Bizarro being voiced by the same actor to portray Superman extended to Superman the Animated Series with Tim Daly and Justice League with George Newbern. It's become a tradition much like, uh, well, in, if you've ever seen the play version of Peter Pan, usually the father, Wendy's father, will end up playing Captain Hook. On the live-action spectrum, Barry Myers played Bizarro on the Adventures of Superboy TV show, and of course, Cayman Stoll over at the Superman vidcast has an extensive interview with him about that. And Tom Welling played a version of Bizarro on Smallville. Although they, the episode was titled Bizarro, he was never called Bizarro. And of course, I mean, we're going to be seeing quite a bit more Bizarro next week and beyond. So consider this subject open. This isn't a complete subject yet because we still have a lot of Bizarro to come. But for now, we have some other comics to review. So let's play a quick promo and get right back to it. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman! Ooh, look, the bat signal! Come on, chum, to the bat cave! Car, right? Chicks love the car. I don't play favorites. Every criminal must be brought to justice. Someday she just can't get rid of a bomb. I swear to God. Swear to me! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I'd like you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning at BatmanLegends.com. Next up for October 2007 cover date is Superman number 666, which went on sale August 8th of 2007. This issue is The Beast from Krypton. It's written by Kurt Busiek. Art, art is done by Walt Simonson, as in he of Thor th- fame. Lettered by John Workman Jr. Colored by Alex Sinclair and Lee Ridge. Edited by Matt Idelson with assistant editor Nachi Castro. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this issue is reprinted in the Superman Redemption trade paperback. And we open ominously six weeks ago with a murder of crows cawing, cawing, and then a voice calls out, He comes. Hawkman lands on a ledge and calls out, He comes, Superman. Six days ago, Animal Man runs with the animals in the jungle and calls out, He comes for you, Superman. Six hours ago, do you see the theme? Aquaman, standing in the water with the fish, calls out, He comes, Superman. He comes for you. And at six minutes past the hour of six o'clock, at the Daily Planet, life goes on as usual at the Great Metropolitan Newspaper until the Phantom Stranger appears for Clark Kent telling him that they have much to discuss before beaming him away. Oddly, we next find Clark Kent home, remembering the vague memories he has of the destruction of Krypton as he escaped in his infancy. Feel like you missed something? You did. Lois arrives home, and no mention is made of the Phantom Stranger, appearing in the offices of the Daily Planet, only that Clark has some work to finish up before heading to bed, which he does at super speed, typing up a story on toxic waste dumps. And just before turning in for the night, Superman is convinced he heard a noise, but shrugs it off and crawls into bed with Lois for some slumber. But Clark's rest is short-lived, as he has a dream that haunts his sleep, one in which he sits on a throne adorned in a slightly tweaked, more regal version of his Superman costume, as worshippers call his name and bow at his feet. In this dream, 
People beg for food and rain from Superman, and shopkeepers promise things like less maggots in their food than the next guy. And food is paid for with coins adorned with Superman's shield. Lex Luthor stumbles around, begging for some bones or a potato. He even has coins to pay, but the shopkeepers tell him he does not bear the mark. And demonic versions of Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Green Lantern descend upon Luthor once again, stating he does not bear the mark, and the scene ends in bloodshed. And Superman awakens, startled by his dreams, and pulls on his Superman costume. A sleepy Lois asks if he's going out, and Superman tells her he's going for ice cream. And Lois asks that he brings some back for her and, and some pickles. As Superman flies off over Metropolis, he ponders her odd request. And at the bodega, Superman continues to ponder the request on top of all of his other responsibilities. As he's looking at the pickle jars, he suddenly snaps and smashes the display. And Zatanna f- appears in astral form and says, this doesn't look good. And Superman is lashing out in anger. Superman overhears and tells Z to butt out which surprises the heck out of Zatanna as he shouldn't be able to see her in this form. Superman explains that, of course, he can see her. He knows he's dreaming. Lois isn't such a cliche as to request pickles and ice cream. So Superman tells Zatanna that this is his relaxation time, a chance to blow off a little steam, and also that she has a great astral can, which I second. And Zatanna tries to warn Superman that this is more than a dream, but a gust of super breath sends her away and Superman takes to the streets of Metropolis of his dream, or the Metropolis in his dream, I should say, more accurately. Luther shows up again in a giant mecha suit to terrorize the city, and Superman solves the problem with super spit. And by that I mean he spits so hard it goes right through the mech, through Luther's head, and out the back of the machine. Awkward. Brainiac is the second act, and Superman rubs his hands together to create super friction and a super static shock, which he blows the Kaluan to pieces with. And to round this out is a whole slew of Superman's enemies, Parasite, Conduit, Doomsday, Terra Man, more and more, they all descend on the Man of Steel, and Superman states that he is tired of the small talk and the fighting that never, ever ends and tears his enemies apart, literally. Draping his cape over the right side of his body, uh, he kind of, kind of like a ceremonial robe, Superman relishes a bit of peace and quiet before the ear-splitting zzzzz of Jimmy Olsen's signal watch calls out. Trapped beneath some rubble, Jimmy pleads for Superman's help, but only gets an exploded head from a super whistle. And then, uh, when Perry comes running out of the Daily Planet to building to beg Superman to stop, Perry ends up with the building on top of him. And apparently, just for giggles... Superman aims a heaping dose of heat vision at 1938 Sullivan Place, where Lois lays in bed pondering baby names, and the apartment is blown sky high, and Lois with it. Superman then flies to Washington, D.C., steals the large chair from the Lincoln Monument, and flies it into space where he looks down on the planet. The human race tries to retaliate by firing missiles, but Superman detonates them before they get very far off the launch pad. Once again, Zatanna appears astrally, and Superman tells her he can hear them drafting their surrenders. Zatanna tells him that he hears more than that, and he has to hear the call by now, and Superman says, yes, yes I do, and hits Z with some freeze breath before flying down to Smallville and creating an earthquake that splits the streets open. As Ma and Pa Kent ask how he could do this, Lana calls out that she loves him, Clark descends into the magma that lay beneath the shattered streets and finds himself in hell. The demon, Etrigan, greets Superman by trying to place chains on the corrupted hero, but Superman tells him to get out of the way and marches right to a throne where Rikar, the villain of the story, the Rikar, the nothing, sits. He's this strange little imp creature. And he asks Superman if he still thinks this is just a dream and explains that he's the last demon of Krypton and he'll, you know, the hell of that planet died in the explosion. Huh? Rikar was able to hitch a ride on Kal-El's rocket and almost withered away until Superman murdered somebody years ago. Superman denies that he killed before tonight, but Rikar explains that he drew Superman into a damning dream, and now the man of soul, Steel's soul is his. And Rikar claims Superman, turning him into a horrific beast of hell, where he's made uh, in basically a deal with the demons of ours, our world, our hell, to turn Superman into their soldier, and in return they sustained him 
even without the proper souls to power him, Rakar. And apparently Rakar was to claim Hell's Champion. And now that he's done so, he, the deal is complete. But Superman pops out of the Beast's shell, whole and intact. And Superman explains that the Phantom Stranger helped make a false outer shell of his soul, which, he could, which could be corrupted while leaving his actual soul intact and pure. Huh? As Superman stands over the heart of hell and tells the demons that he could tear the place apart by starting a civil war, but the demons make a bargain and they crush Rakar, removing their power from him. And Superman is sent back to Earth and life continues as normal, almost. Clark enters his apartment with pickles and ice cream, which Lois thinks is horrible, like a bad sitcom. And Clark asks Lois if he's ever killed anyone. And Lois tells him he's Superman, he would never do such a thing. But Clark is left with a doubt, and deep in hell, that one piece of doubt helps the shattered carcass of her car stir, and the issue ends with the demon smiling. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted at this issue, just flabbergasted. Who thought it would be a good idea to have an issue in which we see Superman basically acting like a D-bag? Because that's all this issue is. They have an entire blog devoted to Superman's shameful antics, most of which are from the Silver Age, done with generally innocent if misguided intentions. This was just an excuse to show how powerful and dangerous Superman could be if he ever went nutso. And, uh, well, thanks now. Now I feel dirty. And why would there be a separate hell for Kryptonians? Isn't hell supposed to be an ethereal plane not connected to a specific planet? It's supernatural. It exists beyond normal physical limitations. And i got to be honest, I'm just going to be straight up. This may be the worst single issue in the post-Infinite Crisis run of Superman books. Seriously. Walt Simonson's art is sloppy. Looks like he threw some quick lines on the Bristol board for, lay for rough layouts and just inked those. And this is the guy that brought us an awesome Thor. And when it comes to Superman, he basically craps out. There's no relevance to this story, no real point. We don't get the message that Superman is incorruptible, only that the Phantom Stranger acted as a deus ex, a deus ex machina to cop out of an ending. There wasn't even a truly, you know, pardon the pun, redeeming scene in this issue. It's a lot of Superman acting like a D-bag with no consequences. It, the less said about Superman number 666, the better. I mean, the six theme just annoyed me. Ugh. I'm just going to slap it with the first ever rating of leave it on the shelf because even a completionist could sleep at night without this issue and i am one of those completionists and i'm kind of sad that it's in my collection to be honest with you but let's wrap up this this week's reviews with superman batman number 39 which hit the shelves on august 15 2007 in a story entitled helpless written by alan burnett penciled by dustin Gein inked by Derek Friedolfs, colored by Randy Mayer, lettered by Rob Lay. Assistant editor was Adam Schlagman. Editor was Eddie Berganza. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. This issue was reprinted in Superman Batman Torment, which was a hardcover and also a trade paperback. And the issue opens up where we left off, with Superman under the effect of a Kryptonian mind machine, gripped with irrational paranoia, hiding in a junkyard where he has fallen into the clutches of the Scarecrow and a trio of vicious hellhounds. Scarecrow activates a boom tube, and Superman, Scarecrow, and the Pooches are transported to Apocalypse, where Desaad is surprised to learn that Superman still has some defense mechanisms left, namely heat vision. And Desaad implants a crystalline spike into Superman's head, which makes him pliant and controllable. Back on Earth, Batman and Lois try to decipher what's going on, the last time Lois saw Superman was last issue, where he was going crazy with fear and using his heat vision on his old buddy Pete Ross. Now he's gone missing, and he hasn't called. Batman has deduced that Scarecrow has gotten to Superman, but hasn't put all the pieces together. Batman tells Lois that what he doesn't know about this, this case could fill the building. And he takes off, leaving Lois alone. He's not one for consoling, let's be honest. In the Batwing, Batman struggles to tie everything together. Scarecrow's specialty is normally chemicals, not wavelengths, not radio waves. Commissioner Gordon phones in through the Batcave, relays a video of the sheriff being killed from a couple of issues back. The monster isn't in the video as we saw it play out. 
and Batman realizes that Crane killed the sheriff with fear, but also realizes that Crane abandoned the pickup in Metropolis, which gives him an edge. So Batman tracks the location where the Metropolis police found the truck and follows a thermal trail to an underground tunnel where Batman is attacked by a gang of werewolves. But wait, what? Werewolves? No, no, not werewolves. Just a group of goons morphed by the hallucinogenic properties of Scarecrow's fear gas. As is Batman's custom, he takes out the goons with these and enters Schrocken's lair, where the beast greets him. And the monster engages Batman in battle, which is a pretty dumb move in any account, especially when Batman knows it's Jonathan Crane and scores a solid hit, knocking Crane down and shattering the illusion. Batman demands to know where Superman is, but Crane refuses to tell him and fires some spikes at Dark Knight to back him off. With the space he needs, Crane opens a boom tube and again escapes. Not one to be left behind, Batman manages to throw a batarang, that's his stock and trade kids, and snag Crane's mother box right out of his hand. Crane may have made it to the other side in Apocalypse, but he knows Batman can track him, and now it's Scarecrow's turn to be afraid. Be very afraid. Batman ponders the mother box and all the prudent options he has, like calling up the League or New Genesis. But he shrugs that all off and opens the boom tube and dives right into it, arriving on, well, Apocalypse? Or does he? Looking around, Batman notes that he's never seen a landscape that was metallic or smelled of motor oil on Apocalypse. And it appears that Batman has landed on Warworld. As Batman is putting the pieces together, Superman flies overhead, buzzing Bruce, and keeps going. So Batman pursues and finds Desaad pulling the strings, standing right next to Darkseid. Desaad explains to Darkseid that Superman can't break his control because he has no mind to go back to. For all intents and purposes, Superman is dead. And just then, a pair of parademons spot Batman and alert Darkseid to his presence. When you've got uh, snooping Batman and Superman as a controlled weapon, what do you do? You send Superman after Batman, of course. And Batman flees, knowing he can't take Superman in a head-to-head fight, and struggles to find a way out. But as Superman has him cornered point-blank, Batman admits his mind is gone blank, and the issue ends on the cliffhanger, once again. What is the main draw for writers of Superman and Batman to pit the two against each other? It seems like the last few storylines in this book have featured on uh, one or another, both mind-controlled and fighting. And maybe it's me, but the main draw of the book has always been that they work together on threats bigger than the one can handle, which leads to epic action. The first story arc featured the the two of them against, well, the world, really. The next brought them to Apocalypse, the first time around with Supergirl. And let's be clear about what's happened in issue 39. Nobody fought Darkseid. Batman had only a grazing encounter with Scarecrow and some goons. Superman spins the issue out of commission, and Batman spends more time flying his jet and talking to Lois than tracking down clues to Clark's whereabouts. I know it sounds like I'm being harsh, but this issue feels like they were stretching the story out because a lot of the exposition that is at the crux of the story could have been laid in the previous two issues. As much as I liked the reveal last issue that Scarecrow was working for Apocalypse, this, is, this issue basically took that excitement of that revelation and then went nowhere with it. These are epic heroes, and really this should be one heck of an epic book. The werewolf fight could have been cool if it had been allowed to go on about a page longer before the reveal that it's a hallucination. Well, the same with the Shrocken slash Crane fight. The bulk of the issue could have been Batman fighting his way through Crane's lair, and it would have been fairly substantial. I think the issue suffers primarily from pacing. It's trying to lay ground too much groundwork when there have been two issues of vague mystery only to have the linchpin of the story revealed at the end of the second issue, which means issue 39 has a lot of gaps to fill in. And this issue, really, it's carried pretty heavily by Gaines art, which isn't, uh, wasn't, isn't as good as the last couple of issues, but it still gets the job done in a big way. Gein's Batman has a lot of great angles, allowing the Dark Knight to look menacing and sleek at the same time. And Superman, who barely makes an appearance, looks sleek as well, but more squared off. Almost like, almost like an animated look, but it doesn't quite balance like it has in issues past. And the main focus seems to be on the two-page splash of Warworld, with the parademons swarming around it, which is admittedly an awesome shot. But that's still exposition, 
and the character work uh, for the rest of the issue shouldn't suffer for one glorious reveal. So overall, this issue was a building block to a slightly structurally lopsided story, which has been enjoyable up to this point. And it certainly doesn't reach the horrid depths of Mark Verheiden's last two storylines. And with all these pieces in place now, it could become epic at the drop of a hat. So I'll give this issue a rating of Wait for the Trade, as it is part of that bigger picture. And while all of this was happening in the Superman world, let's look at the greater world of the DC Universe as we look at what was happening elsewhere in the DCU. Nightwing took on the Vigilante in Nightwing number 135. Amazon's attack came to an end with issue number 6, and surprise, the human race prevails. And while Supergirl deals with her failure during Amazon's attack in Supergirl number 20, Diana searches for Sarge Steel in Wonder Woman number 12. Kyle Rayner raises Hell as a new Parallax, and the entire Sinestro Corps behind him in Green Lantern number 22. Booster Gold premieres in his new number one, uh, new series to protect the multiverse and the timeline. And it's a good look at the day in the life of J- the JLA as Brad Meltzer wraps up his run in Justice League of America number 12. Kilowog goes toe-to-toe with Arkillo as the Lost Lanterns find Saddam Yat as he is imprisoned by the Anti-Monitor in Green Lantern Corps number 15. Ra's al Ghul's origin is retold in Superman, or pardon me, in Batman Annual Number Twenty Six, and the Teen Titans celebrate fifty issues with a tweaked lineup, including our own Supergirl. And Freddie Freeman battles Apollo on his way to gaining all of Captain Marvel's powers in Trials of Shazam Number Nine. Meanwhile, over in the Countdown series, issue number thirty-nine has the Karate Kid meeting Oracle. Jimmy Olsen tries out for the Teen Titans in Countdown Number Thirty-Eight. The Pied Piper and the Trickster run afoul of Poison Ivy in Countdown number 37, while a corrupted Mary Marvel crosses paths with Zatanna in Countdown number 36. And finally, Zatanna, Donna Troy, and Mary Marvel explore the multiverse in Countdown number 35. And that is a little glimpse at what was happening elsewhere in the DC Universe. Next up, we're going to take a look at uh, part one of a two-part Superman the Animated Series episode. So I'm going to play a quick promo, and then we'll be right back with that. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com and finally we look take a look at superman the animated series episode 9 which is the main man part 1 Originally, I was going to do both parts, but now that we're back to normal, we've got a good pace going. Let's not mess that up. Now, this episode originally aired on November 9th, 1996 on the WB. Features Tim Daly as Superman slash Clark Kent. Dana Delaney as Lois Lane. Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor. Brad Garrett as Lobo. As in, yes, everybody loves Raymond Brad Garrett. And, of course, he does do the uh, voice of Bibbo when he pops up from time to time. Sherman Howard is the preserver. Victor Brandt is Emil Hamilton. David L. Landry is Squeak. This episode was written by Paul Dini and directed by Dan Ribba. And the episode opens in an open desert as a familiar ship blazes across the screen. In a protected bunker, Emil Hamilton and a group of Star Lab scientists clock the speed of the craft, finding that the readings are off the scale. Having lost sight of the craft, they are surprised to see it speeding right for them, Top Gun style. Maverick! And after the craft lands, Superman steps out and thanks the scientists for retrofitting the ship that brought him to Earth as an infant for space travel. Emil tells Hamilton that working on the ship was any scientist's dream, and he asks, where did you tell me I was? you were hiding in this ship all these years? And Superman says, I didn't. Looking to the sky, Emil Hamilton wonders about life on other worlds, their technology, and their brilliant minds. Q Lobo belching loudly and telling a bar full of aliens that they have about 10 seconds before he frags everything in sight, which in Lobo speak means 1, 10, and blast. He blasts up the bar, sending the patrons running, save one. Squeak, a rodent-like creature with a smaller face over his left eye. 
turns out that Squeak is Lobo's bounty after little guy stole some treasure from an intergalactic royalty. So stuffing Squeak into a spittoon, Squeak's bigger brother bursts into the bar looking to collect the bounty with a small cadre of goons. A fight ensues, which seems to happen a lot around Lobo, I don't know if you've caught that, and ends badly for Squeak's brother and his friends. Whistling, Lobo summons his space motorcycle, and with Squeak in hand, takes off, leaving the bar in rubble. As Lobo is saving, is leaving the planet, a giant group of egg-looking aliens announce that he has entered a range and fire a red beam at Lobo, which acts as a tractor beam, bringing them on him onto their ship. One of the floating aliens steps forward and announces himself as the Preserver. He tells Lobo that he wants to hire the most ruthless bounty hunter in the galaxy. Lobo declines at first, since he's already on a job, but the Preserver beams Squeak away, saying he can stay here, and the Preserver shows, uh, well, he talks Lobo's language, shows a menagerie of rare creatures he has aboard the ship. One of them, is, each one of them, is the last of their race. And he starts talking Lobo's rain, uh, language when he shows him some money. He explains that when Krypton exploded, he thought the entire Kryptonian race was extinct, but he has found one living on Earth, Superman. Well, Lobo thinks Superman looks like a first-class wimp and, you know, still tries to balk, but the Preserver talks the main man's language. Money, lots of it. So Lobo signs on, and Lobo's arrival on Earth isn't subtle. A lone police officer watches a newscast at a precinct, talking about how, you know, we've been seeing blurry photos of UFOs that look like frisbees, but now we have a clear picture and experts are agreeing. It's a scroungy-looking biker. And the security guard laughs it off until the main man himself enters the building and asks where to find Superman. The officer says they don't keep tabs on him, and he shows up when there's trouble. So Lobo smiles and says, I can do that. Clark Kent, meanwhile, is working at the Daily Planet when Lois throws down a copy of the paper, asking how a yokel from Kansas gets all the good stories. Kent tells Lois the truth, that he's Superman pretending to be a journalist in order to hear about trouble and squeeze Lois out of the byline. Lois tells Clark that he is a sick man and walks away. Clark begins hearing a ruckus, which I cannot describe the ruckus, and uses his x-ray vision to spot the trouble at the, at the police station. And Lois gets the call reporting the attack, but when she takes it back to Clark's desk, he is, of course, gone. Because Superman is flying into action to find Lobo tearing up the police station, and the two begin to fight almost immediately. A pair of police officers throw some tear gas at the main man, which brings him down, or so it would seem. Turns out Lobo is faking, and the fight ensues, ending up in the air with Superman hitching a violent ride on Lobo's bike. And after running the bike through several stories of the LexCorp building, Lobo manages to shake Superman off and fire a missile at a commuter train, forcing Superman to save it. Superman flies the rocket into the air where it explodes, knocking him back down to the ground, where Lobo approaches the winded Man of Steel, explaining that he's figured out that Superman actually cares more for bystanders than himself. So approaching, Lobo explains that somebody is paying him a heap of cash to deliver Superman, and the main man always delivers. Just as Lobo is about to take a crowbar to Superman, Lois hits Clo Lobo with a metal bar, which does all of nothing save getting Lobo's attention and providing him with a snack in the form of the metal bar. Nom nom nom. As Lobo asks Lois to hit him again, Superman fulfills the request, once again sending Lobo flying through the LexCorp building, just as Lex is demanding all repairs to be completed in an hour. Better make that two, Lex. And Lobo gets away to take five before finishing the job, leaving a ticked-off Superman to get his, into his ship and his spacesuit, a.k.a. the toy merchandising, and take off after Lobo in space. And as Superman searches, Lobo arrives on the ship's canopy with a crowbar, and Superman electrifies the exterior of the ship. The battle becomes a space battle with Superman's rocket versus Lobo's bike, and the bike edges out the ship. So Superman ejects, takes on Lobo mano a mano, trying to tear the bike to pieces. With the battle ongoing, the Preserver takes this opportunity to blast Superman and knocks out the Man of Steel. When our hero awakens, he finds himself aboard the Preserver's ship in an environment that simulates Krypton's red sun, leaving him powerless. Lobo mocks Superman, but the Preserver says he needs more, one more alien for his collection, the last Zarnian. And Lobo is the last Zarnian, since he fragged the whole planet as a high school science experiment, and gave himself an A, too. 
The Preserver manages to drop a glass column around Lobo and knock him out, meaning that both Superman and Lobo are prisoners of the Preserver, and the episode fades to black. To be continued. Okay, this episode was fun. Straight up fun. Lobo was presented correctly as over-the-top, violent, crude, crass, and it worked. Admittedly, I'm not a big Lobo fan, but he's a good contrast for the Man of Steel. He's all the brute strength, but none of the ethics or altruism. Lobo made his first appearance in Omega Men number 3 in an orange and purple jumpsuit. No, I'm not joking. Writer Keith Giffen created Lobo as a Valorpian, whose race was exterminated by Scions, and I don't mean the little box-like cars. After the crisis, Lobo became a Zarnian and actually released a plague of giant scorpions on the planet, which he refers to in this episode. Lobo was now a leather-wearing biker who bounty hunted for fun and profit. Now, he was supposed to be a satire of hyper-violent comic book characters like Wolverine, but in an odd irony, he became the poster boy for the -the over-the-top violent characters. Oddly enough, after his appearance on Superman the Animated Series, a Lobo animated series was was put into the works, along with a video game. Neither of these saw the light of day. Additionally, more recently, Guy Ritchie was slated to direct a live-action movie adaptation, but dropped out to make Sherlock Holmes 2. Now, there is a live-action Lobo movie. It was a student film made at AFI, based on the Lobo Paramilitary Christmas miniseries, or one-shot, I'm sorry, in which the Easter Bunny hires Lobo to kill Santa Claus. But normally, you can find this movie more conveniently at bootleg form at conventions. Odd note about this episode, when Disney XD began replaying them, they actually cut out Lobo's pseudo-obscenities. Which is weird to think about since this played on a Saturday morning cartoon schedule. So, even though the words aren't actually curse words, they just resembled them, they were cut out for Disney. Say thanks to the mouse for, uh, you know, a little bit of censorship. But, you know, in the context of this episode, Lobo really works for me. There's one flaw in the episode... When testing the craft, Superman and Hamilton mention that they haven't taken the ship into deep space, but in Stolen Memories, Superman admits that he took the ship around Alpha Centauri. Okay, that's more of a production issue than a flaw. The episodes didn't exactly air in the order of production, so small things like that often happen. It's not like the Clerks animated series where they went way off the charts. And one treat of the episode, I have to say, is Sherman Howard, who provides the voice of the Preserver. For those that know, uh, Sherman Howard is a Superman veteran. He played Lex Luthor on The Adventures of Superboy. So this episode, I think I I would like to have seen a little bit more Lois Lobo uh, interaction, but overall, it's just fun. I I think they could have probably done this in one part. Not that it's a major flaw that they didn't, but I think in terms of story beats, they could have fit more in. But we'll continue this story next week. And overall, as I mentioned, it's a fun-filled, action-packed episode, and it does end on a great cliffhanger, so what more do you really want? So I give this episode uh, four S-Shields out of five, because I think they could have done it in one, but it wraps us up for this week. So I want to say thank you for listening to Superman Forever Radio, and it's good to be back. And the show will remain weekly with no breaks through the end of the year. And I appreciate your patience. I needed to recharge the batteries after the uh, the, uh, Superman celebration. But uh, this is J. David Weeder saying until next time, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. You can find Superman Forever Radio at supermanforever.com and on iTunes where you can leave a review. Superman Forever Radio is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network where you can find Superman podcasts from all eras of the Man of Steel and it is located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, and there are several ways to contact the show. Drop me an email. The address is mail at supermanforever.com, or follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash supermanforever. That is Superman, the number four, ever. Also, the show is on Facebook. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash supermanforeverradio, and you can use the like button to follow that way. And finally, you can leave a voicemail for the show at 703-95-SUPER. Please keep the messages short and do not include personal information like phone numbers, etc., as these will be played on air. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers entertainment company. 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Okay, fly into space, bank, smile at the camera, fly off screen. Excellent.